I've been working with teens for the last 10 plus years. I've been teaching them tools for greater mental health. One of the tools that I teach is a reframing tool. I basically have teens describe the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And, you know, they're so wrapped up in the story and there's passion behind it. And, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, isn't that messed up kind of thing. And then I ask them to take a couple of deep breaths and now find five ways that this was the best thing that ever happened to them. And there's grunting and there's, you know, resistance. But when you get the ball rolling, the actual reframing is an absolute power tool. It can shift your perception about everything. And I've had teens give me the feedback that in the middle, in the middle of a fight with one of their parents, they ask themselves in their mind, how is this the best thing that could have been said or the best thing that, you know, the best way that this situation could have unfolded and they could find the ways right in that moment. And it takes practice. It absolutely does take practice. And I know that you're on a path to mastery of your inner worlds. And I just think teaching teens these sorts of tools uh, will prepare them for life. They won't have to go through some of the stuff that I went through and I'm sure you did too. Welcome to today's episode of Unleash Thyself. I am your host, Constantine Moron, and our guest today is Lainey Liberty, a best-selling author, inspirational and international speaker, community leader, teen mentor, and an advocate for alternative education. She has been instrumental in spearheading the flourishing world schooling movement with significant projects such as Project World School and Transformative Mentoring for Teens. In today's episode, we embark on a journey with Lainey, who courageously traded the American dream for a life brimming with exploration and discovery. For over a decade and a half, she and her young son have been globetrotting, absorbing the abundant richness of diverse cultures and experiences. Together, we unravel the transformative potential of partnership parenting and its deep-seated impact. We'll explore the significant paradigm shift from fear to love, steering one's life based on core principles and values rather than rigid rules. As we dive into the discussion on embracing diverse worldviews and perspectives, evolving as individuals and championing connection over coercion, you'll gain invaluable insights into a life-led fearlessly, and to the fullest. So, prepare yourself for an unforgettable conversation that's sure to leave a lasting impact. Welcome back to Unleash Thyself, the podcast that inspires and empowers you to unleash your full potential. I am thrilled to welcome Lainey Liberty to the show. Lainey, we can't wait to hear more about the experiences and insights that have led you to where you are today, and your unleashed moment, the moment you knew you were on your own path to becoming the best version of yourself. Lainey, it's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I'm so excited about today's conversation. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> well, I love, the, I love the vibe and the energy already. So tell us, where does your journey start? I know it's an amazing journey. I've had the pleasure of learning more about you in the last few weeks, but I would love for our audience to get a glimpse of that from the author, the person behind the screen. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start with my origin story and it's going to bring us back to 2008. 
I'm originally from California. And in 2008, the California economy crashed. And for those of you that live there or experience anything like this, you know that it, it affects many different sectors. The first to be affected was the nonprofit world. And the majority of my clients at the time, I owned a branding agency. And at the time, the majority of my clients were nonprofits, green eco companies, and they were the first to be affected. I worked in advertising and marketing for close to 18 years. And the last mm -hmm. eight of those years were, it was my business that I was running. While I was doing that, I was also a single parent and a parent at the time to a nine-year-old son whose name is Miro. So you'll hear me reference Miro because he's a big part of the story throughout this conversation. So late one evening, it was, it was near the end of October, and I remember sitting in my office and one of the things that I had heard from my son for the majority of his life was, mom, you're always working. You're never spending any time with me. And that really cut through my heart like a, a jagged knife. Like I can't even tell you how that just pierced that, you know, that, that center of, of myself. And all of the while I'm working hard because I'm providing for my family. I am the sole provider. I'm the, the custodial parent. Even though I was in partnership with, with my son's father, he was, you know, sort of on the sidelines, but fully supportive of the paths that I've chosen. And it was great to have that partnership with him, even though, you know, he was available, but I was really the one raising him, raising our son. He was almost 15 years older than me and was ill quite often. And so that also was a part of our story, our origin story. And so as the sole provider, you know, of course I worked and wanted to provide this great life, but we both had this cognitive dissonance. We should have been you know, really happy because we had money. We had, you know, I drove a Mercedes. We had this 2000 square foot loft. We had everything that you could, could desire. I was able to provide that other than having real precious time. And as I sat in the office late that evening, Miro was on his computer playing video games and I was struck by inspiration. I looked over at him and I said, honey, what do you think if we just got rid of all of this stuff and just had an adventure? And every part of me knew that the words that I was speaking was coming from, from my source, from my higher self, from whatever path I've, I've was meant to go on, you know, determined by me, of course, but this is part of my destiny. I just knew that I witnessed these words coming out of my mouth. It was, yeah, I was in full peace. And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, one question first. And I said, what? He said, do I have to go to school? And I said, no. I'm in, I'm in. And that was the beginning of this massive adventure, which really turned into a transformation of so many different parts of my life, his life, our relationship, our connection, my parenting path, my mental health path, and then eventually into the work that I started doing many years later. So that's the origin 
we set out six months later from that conversation, early to mid-2009, and he was just <sighs> turning 10 years old at that time. And our goal was to leave the United States for one year. We were going to travel from California. We're from Los Angeles, and we were just going to head south, and we were going to work our way down in one year to the tip of Argentina and Ushuaia. You know, that would be our our ending destination. Mm. So I'm speaking to you today from Mexico. I am back here. I can't say we stayed here, but we, over the last, now about ready to start on our 15th year being out of the United States, we've been around the world many times. We've, you know, my, my nine, 10 year old son is now 24. We've started several businesses together, and I've written a book, which we'll talk about, you know, the impetus and inspiration for that book. And yeah, it's just been an incredible transformational journey that has touched on all of these different points, which I know that you're really keen to talk about because it's it's the theme of your podcast. Absolutely. That's oh my, such a beautiful story already, right? And we haven't even delved into any of the parts. The only juicy stuff. <laughs> yeah, right? I, I'm smiling here. I mean, I, I can't wait to ask so many questions. Anyway, let's go to the beginning. So two questions come to mind right away. And I'll ask the first one now. How scary were those six months leading up to you living in the country? For you, for Miro, and for the people around you? Because, of course, this is something that very few people do. Yeah, well, more people are doing it, and I have something to do with that, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But that was a question that I was asked quite often as we were preparing to leave and as we first entered into the beginning stages of our journey. Who I was then is not who I am now. I've really developed a deeper relationship to my fear. And I've learned to understand how to uncover the fear. And as we, you know, specifically to answer your question about the first six months of preparation, I was so driven to do this thing because I knew it was right, because it was my inspiration guiding us, that I didn't feel fear. I felt courage. But the moment that we stepped off the plane in, I think the first location we went to was Cancun, actually. That's where we stepped off the plane. And I felt it was, you know, summer, it was humid. I remember the hot air running across my face. And I remember just the sounds and the smells and the language and everything was so far out of my comfort zone that it did take some really intentional processing of that fear. I remember crying at night, like, what the hell did I just do? And all of that stuff came up the first couple weeks that we were there because everything was so new and we were so far out of our comfort zone. But that Lainey and Miro that stepped off the plane in 2009 really was the beginning point of re-establishing our relationship to self, to our inner worlds, to fear, to beliefs, to to thoughts. 
And it was a beautiful invitation to look and see what was there. And because at the time, my son and I, I was responding initially to, Mom, you never spend any time with me. I wanted to make sure that this journey that we were taking together was a journey into partnership. I really wanted him to see, to feel seen and heard and actually very understood. That was really, really important to me. And so we stepped into our journey with our scaffolding in place. And that looked like we are going to do everything we do in partnership. We are going to be accountable to one another and our emotions and the things that we're feeling is important and it's 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 vital that we unpack those things every night and check in and make sure that we create our own family culture now that we're in a new situation and create these new ways of being in relation to one another and partnership, accountability, not having any rules, which was a cool idea. Like we lived without rules. And I could talk about the tools that we use to to stay safe a little bit later on, if you're interested in following back up with that. And another thing was creation. We wanted to co-create. And that was very, very intentional. So I know you're talking about the fear, but the fear was was a part of the processing. But once we had the time to actually look at what was resonating, what was alive for us, we were able to pull it apart together, right? Uncertainty and the the whole sort of idea around quote unquote, I'm going to use this in, you know, air quotes, security is a fallacy. It's, it's, it's one of those ideas that we agree to cultural, culturally, which keeps us, you know, stationary. And we had already decided not to be stationary. And so we're moving against the grain, against the grain of conventional life or conventional living and stepping into the unknown does bring some fear. But what we learned to do over the years and specifically intentionally for those first six months was transform that fear into excitement. And you know, when you're super excited to, you know, I don't know, you know, go to a special occasion or meet somebody, you get those butterflies in your stomach. It's almost the same feeling as fear, but the thoughts keep your nervous system dysregulated. And the intention of trying to change our perception of the physical feeling to a feeling of excitement benefited both of us. And that on many levels gave us the strength to know that our internal worlds were just as important as the external worlds and they were connected. And so having the ability to switch the perception was our first sort of aha moment. Yeah. I love how you answered that, Lainey. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was going a bit with the fear as well, trying to understand how much of the fear came from you versus coming from those around you. Because I would imagine people in your life 
maybe at one point or another may have thought that you've gone off the rails a bit to, to make such a drastic move. So I'd love to understand a bit more about the, the tools like you mentioned. But before we go there, tell us a bit more how you manage to not allow others in your life to influence your decision to finally follow your heart, like you said, right? To take yourself, take your son and go on this beautiful adventure into the unknown. Well, the knowing that this was without a single doubt was our path. And I knew that. I knew that just like I was going to take my next breath. I knew it. I knew with with pure certainty. And the way that I knew that is because my heart was telling me this is this is what we're doing. It was scary, right? You know, you talk about the fear. It was scary. But that scariness or that fear was really again about the excitement of change and the excitement of co-creation and the the actual talking with my son and building up this, I don't want to say expectation, but the excitement about stepping into this new thing together was so Mm -hmm. powerful. And we were partners in all of that. How did I let other people not influence me? It's interesting because, you know, I had quite a few friends that thought, okay, this is Lainey just doing another one of her crazy you know, things, right? Family also pretty much the same thing, but it was, it was manageable in the respect that it was only one year. And okay, Lainey's going for one year. She's taking Miro for one year. Okay, we can manage that. And I had friends that said to me, Lainey, why don't you go out and get kidnap insurance? And I was like, what the heck is that? Why do I need that if I'm kidnapped? <laughs> you know, it's the, like, you know, it's like an afterthought. I mean, yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm just not doing that. And you know the 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 typical warnings. You're a blonde woman. You're single. You're traveling through Latin America. You're gonna be a target. And I just thought, how is that even possible? There are families in Latin America, just as there are everywhere in the world. Those are the people that that I want to connect with: families and children, and moms and dads all around the world and learn about their culture. I'm not, you know, a drug kingpin. I'm not like running in, in, you know, the, the world of cartel. I'm not living a dangerous life. I don't, I believe if I was in that world, then I'd have a lot, lot more to worry about, but I'm, I'm, I'm a parent. I'm somebody who loves life and loves my child and loves connecting and loves learning. I, you know, I didn't feel that the world was a scary place and I still don't. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds to me like everything we've talked so far, you like to take it from the positive side more than the fear side, right? From the love side more than everything to do with fear. And I, and I love that aspect of it because if you allow fears to dictate or control your life, then that's all you're going to manifest and show up in your life because that's what, you're telling your brain to focus on and it makes sense to me yeah. and if you're flipping it a bit and say okay let's look at the positive side while like you said keeping in mind all these things that could happen so you had tools to protect yourself 
but lead from a positive, positive state of mind. And I love that aspect of it. So tell us a bit more about those tools you use, because you said you had to think about kidnapping insurance and all these safety issues. And of course, single lady with <laughs> son traveling around, right? Of course, there could be things that could happen. Sure, sure. If you make, you know, yes, there are people that are sometimes in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that happens everywhere. It happens in your home country, of course. And the precautions that I took living in my home country are similar to the precautions I take anywhere else. Obviously, I'm not walking down a dark alley at four in the morning with my you know, son. I'm just not doing that. I'm making wise choices. But we did create a series of, of tools or, or utilize a series of tools that, that helped to keep us safe. And one of the ones that I talk about quite often when I work with parents and with teens or world schooling families is recognizing that you don't have to live with rules. Rules by the nature of rules require an authoritarian paradigm, which was not a paradigm I wanted to step into in in my parenting journey. So I didn't want to be the rule maker. I didn't want to be the rule enforcer. And I didn't want to be the rule breaking punisher. You know, like I didn't want to be judge, jury, police, all that stuff. Instead, if we could trust one another and live based on our values it creates a much easier way to navigate life. So coming from the world of branding, one of the tools that I used in my branding business was helping the brands that I help create or define, define what their core values are as a brand. And from that perspective, it's really a wonderful, deep, you know, intuitive journey into self to figure out what are those core values that light you up? What keeps you ticking and what's important to you? And so I ran these exercises for myself and for my son. And then we came together and shared what our top five core values were each. And then together we defined what the core values of our family culture were. And anytime a decision came up, we would run it through our core values. You know, is this the question we would ask? Is this in alignment with our values? And it was a simple yes or a no. And if it was a no, we need, needed to look and negotiate and see if it was something that we really wanted to, to spend money on or spend our time on or actually do, or if we had another option. And so that was one of the tools. One of the other tools, and you know, you, you sort of touched on this a little bit in terms of what you focus on is what you get. As somebody who has studied psychology and neurobiology and developmental stages for teenagers, one of the tools that I came to understand is comes from the neurobiology. At the tip of your brain stem, there is something called the reticular activating system, and it acts like a like a guard gate, like like what what's that guy who stands at the bridge and says, "You shall not pass." Well, it, it's like him. What's what's his name? I can't remember. Lord of the Rings. I don't remember. Oh, uh, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it evades me as well. Okay, okay. So, but anyway, so if you think of this, this Gandalf, fa- Gandalf. yeah, Gandalf, you shall not pass. So the thing that you think about, and when you're thinking, and you have a repetitive thought, and this actually goes into part of my origin story, which I haven't touched on yet. But when you have a repetitive thought, it tells the reticular activating system to focus on the things that will prove your pattern of thinking. So if you're always thinking, for example, the world is unsafe, everything that you see will be evidence of that. And so as somebody who was quite aware and was on a self-development journey and a self-healing journey because of before 2008, my childhood, you know, had quite a bit of, of trauma growing up. I had a lot of abuse growing up and, and trauma and a lot of things that I really worked really hard in my 20s and 30s to try and heal, first unpack, pull apart, look at, understand, integrate, and ultimately try to reprogram. Understanding that the reticular activating system is a part of that process. And if I'm going to resonate in fear, I am only going to see. My brain is only going to allow me to see the things that will create the evidence for the dominant thoughts that are running in the subconscious mind. And so it was really important having that understanding that we looked at the world as a safe place and we saw the evidence of that. And so understanding the relationship between our neurobiology, our perception, and the way that we choose to live life was really also another really powerful tool that we utilized. A lot more tools. In fact, I wrote a book and it's, it's filled with tools. And partially why tools are so important to me is because, like I said, in my 20s and 30s, I always wanted to be a parent. And I didn't want to be a parent the same way that I was parented. And I wanted to be actively healing a lot of the unconscious patterning that was created from a childhood that was filled with trauma. Yeah, oh, beautiful. I love all those tools. And uh, it makes sense to me as well, especially when you're thinking about the psychology and the biology, like you said, and taking a look at examples in our life. Yeah. Things you focus on, good or bad, whatever label you put on them, they will manifest in one way or another. Sometimes you may miss it, you might miss it, but you will also see them plenty in your life. So just take a look and you'll see a lot of it. That's why in my own life, shifting my perspective from the negative to the positive has been transformational. Yeah. Because you're not ignoring the quote unquote bad stuff or the negative stuff but you're deciding not to focus on it. So you're focusing on the positive side while keeping in mind the potential less desirable outcomes. So now you're focusing on what can be good, what can we make even better, and then going with that. I think that's so beautiful, and I've seen so many examples in my life. And I wasn't necessarily a believer at the beginning. Yeah. And it's one of those things that you have to try for yourself to realize. Yeah, I totally agree. I currently work with teens. Well, I've been working with teens for the last 10 plus years. And since 2020, I've been teaching them tools for greater mental health. 
One of the tools that I teach is a reframing tool. I basically have teens describe the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And, you know, they're so wrapped up in the story and there's passion behind it. And, you know, there's a lot of like, oh, isn't that messed up kind of thing. And then I ask them to take a couple of deep breaths and now find five ways that this was the best thing that ever happened to them. And there's grunting and there's, you know, resistance. But when you get the ball rolling, the actual reframing is an absolute power tool. It can shift your perception about everything. And I've had teens give me the feedback that in a middle in the middle of a fight with one of their parents, they ask themselves in their mind, how is this the best thing that could have been said or the best thing that, you know, the best way that this situation could have unfolded and they could find the ways right in that moment. And it takes practice. It absolutely does take practice. And I know that you're on a path to mastery of your inner worlds. And I just think, you know, introducing, again, my passion is working with teens, teaching teens these sorts of tools uh, will prepare them for life. They won't have to go through some of the stuff that I went through, and I'm sure you did too. Exactly. So I love that part, right? Because the younger someone starts to understand the nuances of how life actually works versus what, let's say, a traditional school or system would teach you, it can benefit everyone so much. And I, I was smiling because the tools you're teaching teens can easily be applied to you and me or anyone that hasn't necessarily gone through that process. Okay. And the second part of that is you you pretty much touched on it. Awareness, I call it this half the battle, because like in your example with the teens, until you ask them to stop and think and say, have you considered other options? Have you become aware that actually this could potentially be something good? They haven't thought of it. And that's what we do mostly in our lives too. And I've gone through that process so many times going back and looking at some of those less than ideal scenarios and say, how can I take it as a learning opportunity versus just always feel bad or anxiety or, or feeling any emotion you want in, and, and turn it into something positive and look at the bright side of it. And there's always something. It's, it's interesting how that works. Yeah, I totally agree. Way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is we're not in in normal conventional life, we're not really taught the power or purpose of emotions. Emotions are there to give us information. But most of the time, if we're feeling bad, we start to embody that and change the language to I am bad or I am the, the feeling. And understanding that emotions give us information, they are temporary in nature, they're neither true nor false, they're, it doesn't have a story, it's just a feeling. And emotions can, because of the nature of, of the strength of intensity that we're feeling, can anchor beliefs or thoughts. Thoughts will 
beliefs are basically patterns of thoughts that we think. And if we think think these patterns repetitively, then they transform into what our brain thinks of as a truth or or a belief. And if we don't take the time to pull this stuff apart, appreciate the emotions, understand that it's temporary, understand that we don't have to identify as that emotion. It's something that just visits us and that the story is actually being created in our mind. It's not the emotion that's the 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 disturbing thing, you know, because they're there and they're gone. It's the story we tell ourselves about feeling bad. And depression is really overthinking about the past. And anxiety is really overthinking about the future. And so coming to a place where we can recognize that we are in control of all this stuff that's happening, that there are tools that we can use to manage and celebrate the the beauty of being human. How cool is it that we can feel depression? How cool is that that we can feel anxiety? That means that something's really important to us. Now, the becoming of the emotion or the feeling is something that we can manage. And Yes, I know there's, I've read studies that, of course, there's chemical imbalances and there's, you know, lots and lots of, of reasons that, you know, depression and anxiety are a part of, of, of our experience. However, I am one of those people that, that truly believes that holistically we can manage our inner worlds if we have powerful tools and the intrinsic motivation to make changes. Yeah. I love that, uh, Lainey. And I, and I would agree. We have the choice and we have the power to make those changes. And yeah. the way I see it now as well is actually we are the only ones that have the power no matter how much we look outwards and we ask people for help, sure, they can give us tools, right? They can give us their perspectives. But until we put in the work, nothing really changes. Yeah. (laughs) So many more questions come to my mind. But one that keeps coming back is you mentioned working with teens, right? And you're doing, I mean, you have a couple of few businesses and retreats you do with teens and a few other things that you do. How have you seen the relationship between teens and their parents evolve as a result of the work you've done? Or have you had a chance to see some of the impact with the families? Yeah. So I primarily work with teens every now and then, maybe once, sometimes twice a year I work with parents, but I prefer not to. Because <laughs> there's a lot more, you know, sort of internal stuff going on there. But one of the things that I do when I do work with parents is I I teach them skills or facilitate tools for greater partnership. And I call this partnership parenting. I think, you know, I I come from a background, I mean, I, I'm a self-proclaimed anarchist. And so anybody or any system that wants to take control or power over my body, my perception, my beliefs, my thinking, um, 
I reject. And a lot of that has to do with, I'm sure, my my childhood growing up. But throughout my entire life, I've been pretty consistent with identifying as an anarchist, which is, you know, an anarchist with values, right? I'm not, a lot of people misconstrue the word anarchist and believe that it's like chaos and fighting and craziness, but in actuality, it's not consenting to systems that are hierarchical in nature, meaning somebody has control over me. I believe that I'm a sovereign individual and that's how I chose to parent. And so by moving in and stepping into partnership with parents, you know, with having parents step into partnership with their children, it could change the whole connection. And connection is at the root of mental health. There's something called attachment theory, and that is a study in psychology that deals with early childhood development, and it deals with the perception of being securely attached as a young person and how it creates the neural pathways for feeling safe and secure in the world. And it will also, if you are somebody like me who didn't have a secure attachment as a child, the patterns that I continued to perpetuate in my adult relationships were a result of my disorganized attachment style, which was something that I had to learn about and actively work to change and create new neural pathways and really repair myself and shadow work. And oh my God, we could talk about all kinds of stuff. But just sort of on a side note, as somebody who was born into a family where there was a lot of trauma. I wasn't physically hit, but I was I was emotionally and verbally abused my entire childhood. And that created belief systems about self that were patterns of thinking that ran in the background. And I keep pointing to the back of the brain because, well, you know, the subconscious mind just runs. It just runs. And it's telling the reticular activating system what to focus on, as we talked about earlier. But as that runs, if the patterns in your life are not healthy, then the recognition that you're living patterns, there's something to change. Well, Part of my trauma response was hyper-independence. And I thought, okay, I got problems. I'm going to fix them myself. And so that's why I studied everything I could about neurobiology, about psychology, about self-healing, about all you know, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, I studied it because I wanted to be better. I wanted to change my attachment, my, my neural pathways. I wanted to be a great mom. I wanted to be in healthy relationships. That was my motivation, and I didn't know how to do that, nor did I have the wiring to do any of those things. So super intentionally, I, I you know, hyper-focused on, on this as part of my work. In addition to the stuff that I was doing with marketing and design, another part of my job was my self-development. And the benefit to all of that was I had in my tool belt all of these fantastic tools that I used so that when I started to work with teams and the first business that my son and I co-founded together was called Project World School. And it was over 10 years ago. 
And we started bringing teens to different places in the world to have these immersive learning experiences. Well, a lot of teens that came on our trips had never been away from their family or been out of the country or, you know, living in community with, you know, 15 other teenagers or been to, you know, the particular country that we're in. A lot of firsts. And so a lot of discomfort came up. And I noticed that the tools that I used for self over the previous decades came in handy. I was able to help teens that were being, you know, feeling and experiencing stress unpack it in a very healthy way and pull Mm -hmm. apart the stuff and look at it and recognize what their emotional state was and talk about it. And then pull apart the the beliefs or the thoughts that were attached or anchored to those emotions and understand where safety came from and and where a sense of self came from and that was powerful and especially because we produced 3 to 4 week retreats in in a foreign country the first week everybody's super happy to be there but by week 2 any of those pretenses that anybody had put up, they start to fade away because you can't pretend for that long. And so the second, third, and fourth week are the weeks where those tools really came in handy and transformations started to happen. But because our business was focused on immersive social learning, and I'm still an advocate for, you know, getting your kids out of school. Again, another authoritarian system that I don't agree with, but getting your kids out of school and empowering them to follow their interests and to recognize that, that this thing that we're carrying around in our head, this, this brain learns, it's a learning device. It's a learning system that all we have to do is be intentional about being present and curious and and communicate and use social learning as as an you know an absolute powerful way to learn and experience or experiential learning also is a deeper way to learn that the learning itself is natural and then adding tools to that just made the the trips that retreats that we produce through Project World School, just these multidimensional experiences that are so powerful that are transformational. And you asked me originally, how do parents, you know, talk about what, you know, the transformation of their kids when they come back? No, but how also how the parents have transformed themselves and the relationship, right? Because I would imagine if a teenager grows through some amazing experience like this, they become aware of patterns and they begin changing them, the relationship when they go back home is going to slightly change as well. There's going to be some integration of the work they've done. And then I would imagine parents will have to be supportive in order to allow the teenager or the, the child to be able to now live a better life from that point of view. Well, one of the things that we practice during our trips, and this is not even talking about like the work that I do online, teaching skills for mental health, but on the trips themselves, there is a closing circle every night. And the question is, you know, what worked today? And then everybody shares from the perspective, like the elements of the day that worked. 
And then always the follow-up question is what didn't work? And the practice of recalling your day and verbally communicating what worked and what didn't work means that you're really showing accountability for your experience. We call that circle. And I have so many examples of of teens that go home that want to do circles in their own family, just because it's such a powerful way to recall your day and be accountable for the experience that you're having and share with one another the the things that they noticed that didn't work or did work. Because a lot of times we forget to say, my God, I I saw what a great job you did today when you were overcoming that thing. Like, how great does that feel when somebody recognizes you for doing that? Or, you know, when you said that thing, I know you probably didn't mean to hurt me, but it stung. And that also is an accountable, you know, a level of accountability that most people don't naturally step into. So it's transformational just by virtue of practicing that. Now I work with, like I said, with families sometimes online. My son and I co-host workshops through partnershipparenting.com and we teach parents, like I said, skills for partnership. And my son now, who is 24, has the great ability to use hindsight to be able to share this work. This didn't work. Um, but this is how it, it helped me transform and step into my adulthood. So it, parents really love working with him. But I also work with teens online. And I've set up courses where I teach tools, just 12 weeks of tools, and then we we use them, we share them, we spend a week, you know, doing challenges, then we come back and unpack that. And every week the tools build upon another tool. And some weeks, you know, we're talking about core values or we're doing shadow work or reframing or passions and purpose, but all of these things that are super important to anybody's experience. But again, I'm focusing on teens. And I think it's really, really a powerful skill to teach. And in all three of those examples, the transformative mentoring for teens and the partnership parenting, where I'm working with the parents, with my son, and the teen retreats that we produce at Project World School, they're all different forms of transformation but there's there's no like sugar coating on any of this stuff. It's real. It gets the hardest stuff. And you know, time will tell what all the transformations are. But I've got I've got a massive testimonial list of, you know, my team did this or it it affected our family in this way. So I just say go to our website and read some of those tri- those oh, Yeah. Just- no, I love that. I love uh, going back to the idea of the circle that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, no long ago, about a month ago now, I started the practice of journaling. And I was someone that hasn't done that before. And part of my journaling at night, at least, I go over the highlights and the lowlights of the day. So very similar to the circle you described. Yeah. But what I've come to realize the power of it was, and the reason I started doing that component alone, is to make me understand or show me that my lowlights, even though they might be about someone else or something someone else did, it's actually I had a part to play in it. And it's 
perhaps how I reacted, perhaps how I interpreted, perhaps how I responded, the choices I made in the moment. And that's actually very powerful. And it, it resonates really well with the circle you mentioned because the same idea. If you look at what didn't go well in the day, you can again reframe it, but also realize that you had a part to play in that. Yeah. And that every, I mean, I, I certainly am not perfect. <laughs> Anybody who claims to be perfect is full of it. <laughs> but it also shows us our own fallibility. And for a parent to practice showing their fallibility to their children, it's powerful, it's vulnerable, and it opens up space for connection. And one of the key components of partnership parenting is asking parents to always reach for connection versus coercion. So the way that you do that is you pause and you ask yourself, is this thing I'm going to say or do or, you know, you know, act or whatever, is this designed with an agenda to coerce or manipulate the behavior of my teen or child? And a lot of times it is because it's not convenient for your child to be having a fit, you know, in the middle of the supermarket because we as adults get embarrassed. But that prevents us from looking at what needs aren't being met in the child in the moment. And it supersedes their needs by with your needs. So if you just want your child to shut up, oh, here, have a sucker or, you know, whatever the thing that you do to pacify them because you're modifying their behavior for your convenience. And that's that's living mm-hmm. with an agenda and it's huge. So partnership parenting is is parenting without an agenda, parenting without that authority, right? And when we talk about partnerships and the way that we conduct our teen retreats is in partnership. So everything has to be consensus. And that's hard sometimes with 15 or 20 people. And sometimes our circles at the end, you know, after we do the what worked, what didn't work, we pull cards, we talk about, you know, what we're doing tomorrow, and then we we get feedback. And sometimes those circles last hours because somebody doesn't want to do what we want to do. And if one person doesn't want to do it, then we need to pull it apart and find out why. And we need to be able to come to an agreement. I'm not going to say a compromise. Sometimes it's a compromise. Sometimes it's shifting plans. Sometimes, but it 100% has to be consensus. And the way that I talk about partnership is... In your relationships, especially with another adult, you know, your romantic relationships, we like to think that we're, we're, we're equal, we're partners, right? But both people are different. One person does this, one person excels at that. Just because I'm better at cooking and doing the dishes doesn't mean I expect my partner to do the exact same thing that I do. I give in that way because that's part of my skills and he likes to sweep. (laughs) So like, like we, we come with different preferences and skills and take on different responsibilities. So we're not the same people, 
but we come together in partnership to share the things that we that make us the us that we are bringing to the partnership. So if we look at our children like that, that's powerful. Okay, so maybe I'm the breadwinner, but you are the kid that brings joy. <laughs> you know, I can't bring the joy the, the way that you do or you know, they're wanted. Our children are wanted. And to be, to choose to be in partnership with them is a powerful, affirming way of, of letting them know that they are important. Yeah. That's powerful, Amy. That's powerful. I love that. Cool. And going back to the example you gave with the store, right? With a child throwing a fit or doing something that may embarrass the parent, right? It's the parent's reaction or choice in that matter to feel embarrassed or feel like they can't deal with the actual cause of the situation. It's almost like treating the symptom and not looking for the root cause, right? Because you're saying, okay, give you the sucker or give you something to shut up. So I'm treating the symptom of you throwing a fit or crying by giving you something. And then I'm, I'm not actually dealing with the root cause, which means that it's going to only get worse and worse over time Yeah, for yeah. both of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember an example from my son's toddlerhood where, yeah, I mean, I am fallible and I made, I didn't make the best choice, but I remember being at the park and he was trying to run up the slide and the other way as a toddler. And I remember very clearly being glared at by the parents of the other children. And that affected me in such a way where I, you know, come on, Miro, come down. We're going to go down the right way. And that was a choice that I made to conform. And as I pulled that apart, I recognized that I robbed my son from the ability of self-regulation he was exploring his own ability to balance, to grip, to hold, to regulate his own nervous system, to be able to do wonderful exploration. Had I not told him, don't do that, you know, he probably would have, that would have been a, a very wonderful exploration into his own ability to know what he's capable of. And, you know, yeah, we all make mistakes, but the reflection of my, you know, recognizing in that, that evening, not in that moment, you know, that other people or culture or society influenced me because I was embarrassed that my son was doing something, quote unquote, the wrong way. And, and that's not an anarchist story. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's always that part of myself where I'm looking at what am I conforming to? Why am, why am I conforming to this idea? Is it because I don't want to feel shame? And shame and embarrassment comes from within, right? Those are things that touch on my root beliefs about self, which were written during my own childhood, right? And so I need to know if I need to override those things to be able to stick to my core values, which is safe exploration is 
is welcome. You know, I'm, I don't care about being embarrassed. Doesn't matter what other people think of, of me. And sometimes I fall back into, I do care, right? People pleasing. And that comes from, you know, a lot of this, the childhood trauma stuff. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful example you gave there because it, it shows you that it doesn't only impact you, but it can impact those around you. And in this case, Miro, your son and his experiences in the world. And that's actually something that I had to look back at quite a bit in the last few years and realize that, like you said, being a people pleaser was something I did and wanting to fit in and wanting to be accepted and wanted ev- wanting everyone to feel at peace and be happy. And that was creating a lot of disharmony within me because I wasn't being true to myself. I wasn't following my heart. I'm not saying I need to be a jerk or anything like that. And sometimes I was, sometimes I still am. <laughs> right? It's, it's about being true to yourself. Yes. Regardless of who's around you. And that's a tough one in today's society, right? Because that's not what you're being taught growing up and everyone else, really. And again, it's, it's finding a balance. But coming back to realizing that you can be your, true to yourself and still be around people and still have people like you and still have amazing relationships. It's just, again, being aware of it and reframing it like you were mentioning earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? We're never going to get it quote unquote, right. We're just not, we're, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to grow. We're going to, you know, make repairs. We're going to move on from that. Hopefully we don't stay the same, you know, yeah. yeah, I mean, you you say well, and then this is something that I keep seeing myself in my life. The idea of growth mindset, right? There are no such things as mistakes. They're just opportunities to learn. Yeah. Now, mind you, I've done this many times in my life, in the past at least, where I made mistakes, where I had these opportunities to learn, and I did the opposite. I did not. Yeah. I hid them away. I put them away. Me too. I shut them down, right? I was like embarrassed. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to look at that. But the beauty is you still have a chance to revisit because you may not have taken the lesson in the moment, but it's never too late, I would imagine. At least not in my case. I've I've looked back at quite a few of these scenarios from as early as I can remember, and it's truly never too late. It's just a, a choice that you have to make. Do I want to to learn from everything I've gone through? And the funny thing, you mentioned this with emotions when you said the most thing as a good or bad emotion. It's just an emotion. And that was a big aha moment for me a few months ago when I actually expanded beyond emotions to everything in life. So things that we label, anything that happens to us, anything that we do, we label it good, bad, and of course, a spectrum in between. And I realized that really, if you look at it, things or anything that we do or anything in life just is. We apply labels based on our understanding, society, culture, parents, whatever thought us certain ways, we apply those labels. So when I had that realization, I was like, you know what? That allows me to do what you mentioned earlier, reframe things. Because nothing is really bad or really good. It just is. But we decide what it is based on what we know in that moment. And we have a choice. Yeah, yeah, that was huge for me. And it sounds like, you know, you you talk about it a lot in everything we've talked so far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. 
I think it's really a powerful recognition, understanding that the perception, the view that we're giving these things are really coming from within. I'm going to give you an example. As somebody who has lived nomadically with my son, one of the things that we learned a lot about were the worldviews that we were bringing with us, right? Because we were from the U.S., we had a very American-centric worldview. And okay, so that, that, you know, includes... You know, I'm somebody who wears glasses and you think of the old machines where they put the lenses on it to test your eye strength and so forth. And they put the lenses in and out. Well, each of those lenses are part of the perception and it it feeds into the interpretation that we give things. And as somebody who is traveling, the first thing that we notice is the differences. And if we're really acute about what we're noticing, we can notice the similarities. And sometimes the differences and the similarities make us so uncomfortable We want to change things, and that's really not the purpose of travel. The purpose of of travel is to learn different perspectives and different worldviews. And how can one person look at, I don't know, you know, something floating down the river and see it as an omen? Another person looks at that and sees that thing floating down the river as a piece of trash and litter, There are different ways of looking at the world or the situation and first pulling apart those or taking those lenses out of, you know, the coloring of the things that you're perceiving is number one, powerful, but then it creates space to be able to recognize how different worldviews can perceive the same thing from a different perspective. And then it allows you then to transform your own worldview to neither right nor wrong or good or bad, but this is my worldview and that is their worldview. And that brings us closer. This is what I believe will create greater peace in in the world. If we can use compassion to recognize the differences and the similarities and not other each other, then that means we've just created a rich, diverse way of seeing the world, which is really powerful. Can I tell you a little story about worldviews and perceptions? Go for it, yeah. Um, A few years ago, maybe six or seven years ago, I, I participated in the oldest pilgrimage on the planet. It is called the Koyuridi Festival. And it was high in the Andes in Peru. And the from the perspective of, you know, understanding anthropology, cultural anthropology, I looked at it through that lens. And so I studied um, about the, the pilgrimage, the festival before I went. And I wanted to learn everything I could about it. And then I went and then I had this experience And then I went back and I wrote about it, but it was really powerful in the sense where the history of Peru, 500 
plus years before the Spanish came and colonized and it was all throughout Latin America. Um, obviously quite brutal in some, some instances. Um, but in the instance of this festival, it was a pilgrimage up to the a glacier. It was through a valley called the Sinicar Valley, and it went up to a glacier at the base of a mount, mountain called Asungati. And this mountain itself was a, the, first of all, the Peruvian people in the Andes believe that the mountains have spirits to them. And so the pre-Incas would come up at this time and go to this glacier because the belief was, and they called it the Star Snow Festival. Um, that's what the ancient people called it, but of course in, in their language, but that's how it's translated. And they would go to this place because this was the highest point and the closest that the Pallades star system was to the earth where the, and they believe that their ancestors came from there. And so they would go and make this pilgrimage every year and honor the place where they believe they came from and their ancestors. Great. Then the Incas came th a thousand years later and they knew that, you know, the ancient people would go do this festival, but they adapted the festival to serve their needs. And it would, they would go up and they would take water from the glacier and it would mark the time for planting and harvesting. And they would use the sacred water from the glacier. And that would be, it was all about the agriculture. And then when the Spanish came, they witnessed this festival or this pilgrimage, and they transformed the story of Coyariti, the festival, into something that was relatable to their doctrine. And they turned the story into a shepherd boy who turned, who saw an apparition and then turned into a bush and lit on fire which comes from the Bible, I, I think. I don't know. I've never read the Bible, but I think, I think that's a, a story in the Bible. And that then became those that, that converted to Catholicism, which the majority of the country did, had something that they could relate to. And that was the festival for them. And going to this festival as an outsider, maybe, you know, one of less than 10 gringo faces there. You know, everybody else was from Peru. And, and this was a very traditional. I had to first be aware that I couldn't invade in, you know, this, this sacred transformation or a sacred festival or pilgrimage. But what I did notice was the different groups of people would camp in different parts of the valley. And the majority of the people were the Catholics. But then up Higher up, you had your Incas or those that came from the Inca tradition. And then even higher in the mountain were those that were pre-Inca that, that celebrated in their particular way. And it was beautiful to see these things, sort of the congruity, the, the, you know, the acceptance of all of these different traditions and worldviews all living together in harmony during this festival. And it really allowed me to appreciate the living 
history that I was witnessing, which was so beautiful. Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful story, Lainey. And it's a good testament to what you were saying earlier. You can have different opinions. You can have different views. It doesn't mean you have to trample over someone else's views or opinions. You can coexist. You can even be friends, right? <laughs> Partners, whatever you might want. But that's a, that's a beautiful example of that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it was a great experience. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. I'll, I'll, I'll flip it on, on you slightly. Because I'm really curious about this idea of following your heart, right? It came to you in the moment and you did that. And it was something new or something you haven't done before. But if you could go back in time to, let's say, those six months you prepared, and you could give your younger self some, some pieces of advice, what would it be and why? Okay, I'm not going to answer your question about the six months prior, but I do have one regret. And it's not about the travel. It's about originally putting my son in school. And that to me was my, my conforming to what I should be doing and the belief that, quote unquote, education was so important that I wanted my son to be educated without ever questioning what education was and what I was giving up. So the, the preparation of following my heart all that went without a hitch. We were on track. We were, we had a clear goal. Those six months of preparation was really simple. We sold everything, gave it away. We, you know, rehomed our dog. It was, we knew what we were doing was, was the right thing. But in hindsight, my regret as a parent was first believing that I needed to enroll my son into school. I didn't even consider homeschooling or what we ended up doing was is referred to as unschooling, but I prefer to use the term self-directed education or autodidactic, or we ended up calling it world schooling. But I, that to me would be my biggest regret would be the, the not exploring something that that wasn't quite in alignment with who I was and the way that I wanted to raise my son. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm sure as we go back, all of us have certain things we would want to change, but like we were talking earlier, just lessons we learned. And it sounds like you learned a valuable lesson in that. And it allowed you to do the things that you've done over the last yeah. few decades. Yeah. Which is Thank you. No, I appreciate that. And I know we've been chatting for quite a bit. So I wanted to give you a chance to share with people where they could find you, learn more about you. And of course, briefly mention about your book. And sure. I know you and I talked about having a separate further episode talking about the book. So okay. I want to give you a chance to share whatever you'd like to share. Sure. Yeah. Let me just share my book and then I'll, I'll, websites and stuff. So I wrote this book. It's called Seen, Heard, and Understood, Parenting and Partnering with Teens for Greater Mental Health. But as you mentioned, tools are for anybody. This is just framed in a way that it is written for parents to help parents to start to understand the things that their teen or tween is going through. There's quite a bit of, there's teen myths, there's neurobiology, there's 
a lot of psychology in here. There's different modalities and frameworks, all which help parents understand their relationship to self and to their children. I even wrote a chapter on partnership parenting. So if you're interested in that, pick it up. And then there's a couple of chapters on nothing but tools. And the invitation is to the parents, do the tools yourself, use them yourself, and then invite your team to use the tools after you've shared the things that you've discovered. And it's a wonderful way to connect. Again, it's about connection over coercion in your parenting. It's really about creating those relationships. And as now the mom of an adult son, let me tell you that the relationship is so important. We are such good friends. Obviously, I'm still his mom, but we hang out. We, you know, I'm just so, so glad that we had the relationship that we do have and the connection that we have and the honesty that we have that I couldn't think of anything better in this world. You know, I've raised an amazing human being and I love the connection that we have. So if you're interested in this book, you can pick it up on Amazon. It's quite a big book. There's lots of tools, like I said, lots of this massive reference section in the back, lots of other book recommendations, and the tools, again, are really, really powerful. The work that I do with teens is based on, (laughs) well, this is based on the work that I do with teens, and the majority of the tools that are in here are actually the tools that I teach teens and we use together. And you can find out more about my work at Transformative Mentoring for Teens. I teach courses for mental health online for the older teens. It's 10, uh, 12 weeks. And for the tweens and younger teens, my son and I co-teach that. And that's an eight-week course. And for the younger tweens and teens, we gamify everything because we're trying to normalize self-inquiry and really working with the internal worlds. And the gamification of it is really a powerful way of getting them to explore these ideas that a lot of times they're not even exposed to. In fact, one of the, the tools in that we or during our eight-week course that we do in transformative mentoring for teens is we create a character based on defining their worldviews. And we just talked about worldviews. Well, we create this character and we've got the criteria and we put them into groups of two and each team creates a character. Then we take our characters that we either draw on or we find a picture and we describe and and present to the course the character, then we put them in situations. How would this person with this worldview perceive this or act? And then we put them together. And it's really a fun way to explore worldviews without being out in the world and you know having the shock of, wow, people think differently. So that's transformative mentoring for teens. The work that I do with parents can be found at partnershipparenting.com. And my son and I co-teach partnership parenting courses there. Um, They don't run that often. We run maybe once or twice a year. So if you're interested, get on the mailing list there. And then both my son and I facilitate 
international teen retreats. We've been doing it for 10 years. We've brought hundreds of teens around the world. We've done trips to Greece, Spain, Thailand, Vietnam, South Africa, Mexico, Peru, Ecuador, all over, Wales. Yeah. So based on the places you might be interested in going to and living in community and having this adventure with another group of teens. It's so powerful. And if you send your teen on one of these trips, expect a little bit of the, you know, self-inquiry and internal world stuff going on on those trips too. So that's Project World School. And then if you're interested in world schooling, I've got a pretty big world schooling group on Facebook. Um, it's for families that want to travel and live outside of the quote unquote system. That's called We Are World Schoolers. And there's also a World Schoolers, We Are World Schoolers.org website. It's a, a free membership site, but it's got hundreds and hundreds of, of content and how to's and videos and things like that. So feel free to join there too. Wow, it sounds like you have so much on the go, Lainey. This is, this is awesome, and the impact you're making as well, based on everything you've shared, is so beautiful. Uh, thank you. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us. <laughs> thank you. Um, so thank you for that. But before I let you go, is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to mention? Maybe a piece of wisdom, maybe some lesson learned you've seen over the years, or anything else? Just two pieces of advice, and this is not necessarily for parenting, but it works for parenting. Become a person who pauses, pauses before you react. That way it gives you time to choose how to respond. Once, if you don't pause, you can go into your habitual state of programming. And pausing is just a very, very, very simple way of starting to rewire your brain. And then the 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 thing that I I even I think I said this earlier, I say this to parents all the time. Ask yourself if you're pausing, is this thing I'm going to say is this meant to coerce or is it meant to connect? And that's a beautiful way to live your life through connection. And I love that so much both of those amazingly neat. But the last one I don't have children yet, right? But I can apply that advice yeah. to many parts of my life, right? My exactly. relationship with my partner, my relationship with my family members, my friends, because we all want consciously or unconsciously certain levels of control over situations, which means people as well. So we can always look at it that way. It's like, are we doing this because we really want to control the situation of the person or because we want to do it from the bottom of our heart. And control comes from fear and fear is not love. Yes. Fear is not love. That's for sure. Well, Lainey, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Loved our conversation. And thank you. Thank you for doing this work. It's important. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. To find out more amazing content, and episodes, please visit UnleashThyself.com or you can find us on social media.